The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, Lloyd, today our show is about medical privacy. And it's really quite scary after I was looking at the research that our wonderful guest has presented, and we're going to hear all about it. So let me tell you a little bit about our great guest who's coming to us from the University of Southern California. Mark Huish, Ph.D., is an assistant professor at the USC Sol Price School of Public Policy with extensive hands-on clinical and management experience as well as research expertise in healthcare management strategy and economics. He is a former practicing physician whose clinical experience includes frontline roles in innovative 24-7 physician-staffed retail clinics in Australia. Oh boy, I've been to Australia, love it. And he has actually so much great information about him that you're going to find his whole bio and his photo uh, at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy right on our website. And also you'll find more about him at USC.edu. So I want to get ready to talk about this great research that he's done. Um, and so thank you so much for joining us, Mark. Good morning, Mari. It's great to be with you. Well, tell us about this research that you've done at USC. Right, Mari. This research was uh, done rather recently. And what I've done is I've looked at uh, about 20 websites. These are popular health-related websites. Some of them are run by the government. Some are run by academic societies. Some are run by major news organizations. And some are commercial websites. And what I've done, I've asked myself, when I go to these websites and I enter data into the, my search, I browse, I generate a track of data, how secure is that data? Does it stay with the website or does it leak to third-party websites without my real knowledge or consent? Oh, my God. So, you know, when I think about this, how many times I've gone on looking for certain diseases, not that I necessarily have, or ones that maybe friends have, or I'm worried about uh, my family members, or even maybe something that I'm scared that I might have. What kind of uh, worries should I have, Marco? Well, I think the, you know, from a public policy perspective, Mari, what we're worried about is that you don't inform yourself. It would be a, a tragedy if consumers 
didn't seek to educate themselves, if they didn't try to obtain information from friends, from online sources, from textbooks, from their physicians, we, we care about the information market and medical information, and we believe as public policy researchers that health care in this country would improve if people were more aware of their options, would seek out higher quality care, would seek out cheaper care, would seek out the right, the appropriate care. So in general, we're very strongly in favor of people seeking to inform themselves, especially online. The kind of things though, that worry us is exactly the sensitive information that can be generated by an innocuous search by some consumer, some individual online. And so we, we are trying to think about the balance between you know, the, the, the need to inform yourself and the need to protect certain aspects of your, your online behavior, especially you know, things that might be sensitive. So in my particular study, I chose three terms that I felt would be very sensitive health information. I chose the term depression, the term herpes, representing sexually transmitted diseases, and cancer. And I looked on these 20 websites for these three uh, search terms. I browsed pages on these. And I used a set of commercial tools to track what was happening while I was online at these websites. Yes. And, and what did you find? So using uh, both freely available privacy tools such as Do Not Track Me and Ghostery, as well as what we call packet sniffers, which are commercial interception software tools which sit in between my browser, my PC, and the Internet and actually monitor every bit of traffic that occurs there, even if I'm not aware of it. So what I found was of the 20 websites I chose, 13 of them had tracker elements. Mm. What tracker elements are are little pieces of script, little pieces of code that either sit on the website itself and understand and, and follow what I'm doing on the website, or worse, that are implanted on my browser in the form of cookies or beacons and track for a long time into the future what I'm doing and share that with subsequent websites that I might visit. And so sharing that when they track you, they track you to other places as well when you leave that website? So I, I want to be careful and point out that the ability to do so was documented in my study. Whether it actually happened, I'm not sure. But, you know, we can, I think, safely and reasonably assume that if you've gone to the, the trouble as a website to build in third-party elements that track users, you're likely to make use of that ability. Um, for a small number of sites, for seven sites, I was able to find out that traffic that I had generated did actually leak to third parties. So the packet sniffer tool that I employed showed me that predominantly commercial websites would leak the fact that my computer had done a search for herpes two third parties, one or more third parties. So that's a subset. That's only seven of the 13 that I observed that from. Uh, but we can assume that in, the, in, in other situations that it's likely that, that some leakage happened because that's the function of these elements is to leak your data to third parties. Right. Well, you know, a lot of these websites are free. You know, I've been on a lot of these different websites when I look up things. And so because people will say, well, you know, nothing is free, right? So they're taking that information and they're using it. So, you know, what do you think about that? Is that what people should just say, okay, because you're seeing this information for free, that you have to give up something? So that, that's an excellent question, Mari. And, you know, I am not an anti-business person by any means. I, I work part-time at a business school in, in Northern Carolina in Duke, and I understand very well 
the need for a free, so-called freemium business model such as many of these websites have, which offer very good, expensive content for free to users, they need to meet the payroll, they need to meet the bills, they need to have the, the electricity running. Right. So I understand that, and I'm, I'm very much in favor of that. What I guess is what really um, is of paramount importance to me is how transparent is such leakage? Yes. And, and are there choices that the, the user or the visitor has with regard to what they want to um, disclose or not disclose? So what did you find out about that? So every one of the 20 websites I looked at, including the sites that had third-party tracking happening, have a privacy policy, which explicitly, if you were to bother to click through it, explicitly inform the user that these activities will happen. Um, they invite users to discontinue their use of the website if they're not happy with that. So I guess implicitly, you have a choice, which is you can choose not to use the website. Or as, in, as my study showed, you can use websites that don't make a habit of tracking their users, such as government or academic websites. Um, the other options you have, which I think are, are underemployed and underappreciated, are to use very freely available privacy protection tools such as Do Not Track Me and Ghostery. These are small plugins that add on to your browser. As I said, they're free, they're easy to install. Installing them on your computer to a, to a very high degree protects you from such third-party tracking. So you get the best of both worlds. Free objective content without any risk or without substantial risk of being tracked. Well, how about these anonymizers? I mean, is, is there such a thing as really uh, when you see something on a privacy policy that says that we collect information, but it's anonymous, like your IP address or something, um, they're saying that it's anonymous. Is it really anonymous? So, Mari, I, I want to hasten to acknowledge that I'm not a, a, a privacy expert. I'm merely a policy researcher. Right. But my understanding is the following. When we think of anonymity, we're thinking of it in terms of traditional unique identifiers, such as a full name, a date of birth, a social security number, an address, a physical address, things that identify you as a particular human. I believe, based on the research I've done, that there's a different concept of anonymity in the online world, which says that if I track you as a computer, if I track you as a particular browser engaging in activity online, that that in some way preserves your anonymity because, after all, I'm not tracking you. I'm tracking your computer. Um, I, I find that a little bit of a, a, a sophistry and yes. not a very ple pleasant sophistry because, to be very honest, uh, the browser configuration that you and I have on our PC right now essentially uniquely identifies our browser amongst uh, all the other browsers in the country. The presence of a cookie on our computer's browser pretty much uniquely identifies our browser over the next few months until we choose to delete that cookie. Everywhere we go online, that cookie is telling a second or a third party, here is this browser again. So the question of anonymity, I think, is a tricky one that, that as a society and as, as a government, we've probably failed to really wrestle with and get a handle on. Right. We are speaking today with Assistant Professor of the Sol Price School of Public Policy at the University of California, our wonderful guest, 
Mark Hughes, Ph.D., and MBBS. What does MBBS stand for, Marco? That is kind of a long way to write MD in Australia, Britain, or Canada. <laughs> it's, it's our version of the MD degree. Oh, okay. Thanks. So are you originally from, from Australia? Uh, originally from Europe, uh, grew up in Australia, practiced medicine in Australia, and have a, a firm belief that carries over into my current work in terms of protecting patients, being an advocate for patients, and having better transparency in, in many parts of clinical care, and in, in particular today as we're talking about the information market online. Yes. You know, we've had Deborah Peel, Dr. Deborah Peel, who's a psychiatrist, and you may know her. She's um, the director of patient privacy rights, and she's been on our show as well. And she has that same concern that we protect privacy and confidentiality, which leads me to the question of, um, you know, uh, what about privacy and confidentiality in, in our medical information? There's that 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 difference between privacy and confidentiality. Right. So I, I always interpret privacy, and this won't be news to you or your, your listeners, I always interpret privacy as being about a person, about being the degree to which that person consents to, to sharing themselves at a particular time, particular place, to particular people, whereas confidentiality refers to data that I divulge in, the, in a trust trusting relationship and that I expect not to be further divulged without my consent. So th those are, I think, fairly easy to understand concepts. I think both of these are, are being uh, threatened by the kind of results I find on my study. So I feel I don't really like that I am being revealed, my search activity is being revealed to third parties. I didn't really understand that, even though the privacy policy implicitly consents me to that. Um, and secondly, in terms of the confidentiality of sensitive terms that I might answer, uh, that I might generate um, when I'm on these websites, I kind of felt that we had a relationship of trust, me and that website. And it, it would bother me to think that marketers are seeing me, whether they're seeing me bundled with a thousand other people in my zip code or whether they're seeing my computer, both of those leakages uh, concern me. They, I feel they're threats to my confidentiality. Exactly. So let's talk a little bit about these leaks. Um, why do you think these firms are leaking data? Well, there's, there's two reasons. One is if you are in a market, uh, if you're a publisher of online material and you, you have to obtain revenue, you obtain revenue by fighting for your share of an online display ad market, which is valued at about $8 billion per wow. year. Yeah. Now, you wish to tell your potential advertisers that you have a good handle on the demographics and interests of your online users. You are a more valuable publishing property for a potential marketer if you understand exactly who comes to you and if your, publish, if your advertiser can target advertisements that are really appealing and get clicked through by your users. So there's a, there's a very sound business reason why I would want to do that. There's also a subsidiary reason. I may actually choose to monetize my users' data as a sideline so I could sell some of this and obtain small incremental pieces of revenue by selling this information into this gray market of the data-broking industry. And, you know, that's that's the scary stuff when when all of these different data brokers sell this information and then they get a profile on you 
and they may profile you in a way that really isn't you, that's not accurate, but they've put together all these databases and then suddenly they see you in a particular way that really isn't you. Right, and I think what you're referring to is a very real risk. In some unpublished work that me and some colleagues at UCLA and Duke have been doing, we've actually taken uh, several thousand employee email addresses from USC, and we have purchased from a small data broker 34 data fields that are believed to be associated with these email addresses. So these are work email addresses, and we obtained information for about 10 cents per name. Wow. And we obtained information on net income, net worth, number of children in the home, purchases and interests. Now, this data may be inaccurate or it may be accurate. In both senses, there is a risk to the people out there. Most people certainly don't know that this data exists, yet it has been estimated, as, as you and your listeners know, that there's a probably 1,500 data points on every adult in the U.S. that are known to data brokers. Um, to your point before, Mari, if this information is incorrect and is used in a way that is to the disadvantage of that individual in terms of what he gets to see when he goes online, what offers, what prices, what opportunities this person has in the online or the offline world, um, that can be that can be have that can be some uh, some major repercussions there for that particular individual. And you know, Marco, it also could affect what your reputation to get a job or your reputation to buy something. So, for example, if I'm going to a cancer website and I and I have a friend right now who has brain cancer and I've been looking up uh, this stuff. If I look that up and I look up other things and then I get associated with that and then I want to apply for a job and somehow that information gets to the employer, maybe they wouldn't want to hire me because they think I'm going to kick it or I'm going to be very high insurance rates. I mean, you never know how this stuff could come back and bite you, right? You, you certainly never know. Now, it would be extremely unwise for an employer to knowingly discriminate against applicants on such a basis. But it does. It happens. It must know. happen. But, it, but still, it, this is a, a gray area where, as you allude to, there are very little controls. And in, in my research, I discovered that the federal uh, government is also very much behind the curve when it comes to understanding the kind of risks to privacy and data confidentiality. They've sent a letter to nine leading data brokers last year, the FCC has, but there's a certain sense that technology has moved very fast and maybe too fast for the regulators to keep up with. And, you know, the sad thing is that we don't really have oversight over these data brokers. Like, for example, we do have some oversight as consumers with the Fair Credit Reporting Act. We can look, we can get a copy of our file, we can we have the right to dispute it. It's, there's still lots of problems, and there's 70% of those credit reports have errors, and about 25% of those are enough to keep you from getting credit or a job. But um, but we don't have that with all these other data profiles. I mean, I haven't seen, you, you talked about that there's 1,500 uh, data points, right? And I haven't seen those 1,500 data points on myself. Have you? I have not. So the, the <laughs> a data broker such as Axiom, A-C-X-I-O-M, right. certainly Axiom. offers folks the, uh, the ability to, to visualize their data, and, and certainly other uh, members of the, the data broker industry have, have had some initial noises about allowing people to, to look at the data and correct it. And certainly one could opt out, and there's talk about such mechanisms, but definitely a strong sense in this space of an inadequate legislatory or regulatory environment. 
Absolutely there is. I remember years ago, I actually testified in Congress on a bill that Senator Bill Nelson in Florida had introduced to actually have oversight and have something very similar to the Fair Credit Reporting Act for all of these data brokers. And it went nowhere, you know, because they had a lot of money to fight it. But this is uh, this is really horrible stuff. And, you know, I deal with people with victims of identity theft and medical identity theft. And um, it's it's a real rough problem because we don't even know what a lot of these data profiles are saying about us. We don't have the right to review them all and we don't have the right to correct them. So it's, it's, a, it's a problem. What, what is interesting, too, I, I've uh, done some little uh, a little bit of research on how third party affiliates of websites actually view data leakage themselves. And they point out that many publisher websites of the, tw- of the sort of the 20 that I looked at in my study are often not even aware that they have accidentally ushered in a third party that is leaking data off uh. of their users. So there's a sense where even publishing websites are technologically behind the curve and not understanding how a social media plugin on a page can leak intent and usage data from a, a user to a social network without the knowledge or the consent of the actual publishing website, let alone the, the users. So there's right. a strong sense here that there is a, there's a bunch of very bright people, very technologically savvy, doing some things which are extremely valuable in a commercial sense and very technologically sophisticated, but I feel have been inadequately exposed to sunshine and, and may benefit from some transparency. Right, no transparency. Let's talk a little bit about HIPAA, because people who are driving by might be saying, well, you know, what about HIPAA? Doesn't HIPAA protect our privacy? <laughs> well, HIPAA, when it first came out 17-odd years ago, did a, a really good job of protecting uh, sensitive healthcare, protected health information. Um, it was subsequently watered down to some degree, and today I feel has, has really lagged some of the technological changes. So when we think about HIPAA saying that health information that is associated with particularly unique identifiers, such as a social security number or name and address, that these are protected pieces of health information when they're generated by a covered entity such as your doctor or your hospital, that's a very old-fashioned way of looking at it. It's today... We don't need to know someone's name and address. We just need to know what their browser is because so much commercial activity takes place on the web. HIPAA, to my understanding, has not been updated for these technological changes. We really need some amendments to bring HIPAA into the 21st century and to strengthen what were well-intended privacy protections 17 years ago. And, you know, I notice now when I go to, like, my dermatologist, I notice that now they all have little iPads and they're inputting data, and one of them, you know, and I asked them to print out, you know, they said, I said, oh, can I have a printout of what you, what you guys have about me, and, and they did it, and there were some errors on there that I was able to just tell them right away, this isn't me, you know, this, is, <laughs> I right. don't know where, you know, because there's, it's, it's not just the electronic data, but there's errors that are input by humans, and no, um, we, so, we care about those, Mari, because we, we, we like to ensure that things are correct. If you're a marketer, though, you can tolerate some false negatives and false positives. If yes. you don't actually have cancer, but you've been searching, and I display an ad to you about cancer, and you don't click through, I might have lost some opportunity, but it's essentially a marginal cost of close to zero. If, however, as you, uh, as you intimated, such data were to leak into the labor market and affect my job discrimination, that's a serious risk for me. So there's an imbalance between 
the cost of inaccuracy for the people using and generating the data and the cost of inaccuracy for people like us whose data is being discussed. Yeah. So when you, you did this study with, with the three issues, herpes, uh, cancer, and what was the third one? Depression. 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 Oh, yeah. Psychological. Health. Yeah, that one. That's scary. Okay. And did you, did you see any differences when you dealt with, the, with those three? Was there any more uh, maybe right. uh, protection for the depression or the mental illness stuff? So, so this is a really interesting question, Mari, and I, and, I, and I speculated about this myself because I found out that the herpes search term was the most widely leaked. And all I can come up with is a hypothesis that people who have herpes tend to be younger, more affluent, more sociable, uh, more amenable to you know, spending some of their discretionary income than maybe someone who's old and who has cancer and is just looking for a physician and may not be in the mood to be tempted with an ad for something else. Mm -hmm. So that's a hypothesis, but uh, certainly it did come out that way, that herpes was the most common leaked term where there was such leakage going on. That's interesting. And what was second? Was it uh, the cancer? Cancer and then depression seemed to be a... a, a, I don't I'm not sure why I'm not a marketer, but for some reason depression was not maybe viewed as a valuable uh, indicator of someone in the mood to buy stuff which which it, seems to make sense yeah if they're too depressed to, to buy anything to right. you know i mean that's pretty horrible to say but you know if you're depressed you don't feel like doing anything yes mari you're right <laughs> so let me ask you um what kind of implications you know from your research what do you want to happen I I would like to say that, and here's where I kind of leave the dispassionate researcher behind and become a slightly more impassioned advocate. I believe that work such as mine, work such as the Wall Street Journal has done over a series of years, work such as yourself and others have done, strengthen my belief that we need better baseline privacy legislation that makes a fundamental bedrock of the relationship between citizens and citizens and firms and citizens and their government. And that says, here are the boundaries of what we can expect. Here's how we will protect you. Here's how we will punish people who violate that protection. I think we need this as a, as a generic federal legislation. And also, I, I think that we need more transparency. We need more awareness. I would like to see folks like, such as Senator Rockefeller, who's retiring this year, be um, hopefully you know, replaced by people who similarly share his passion for um, protecting the online rights of, um, of, of citizens in this 21st century. Um, and so what do you think, you know, we don't have a lot of time. Mm-hmm. We have about two minutes here. But what, what would you like to suggest in all that you learned, which is fascinating stuff, what would you like to suggest that ordinary consumers like me, that what, what should I be doing when I am concerned about healthcare? How... What should, I know you talked before about that you want us to learn as much as and become educated consumers and know a little bit about our, our, our problems. But what else would you like to suggest that you really thought is important after doing this research? Right. So to, to, to help you continue doing that with some peace of mind and to protect yourself against the kind of risks that my research flags, I think you should think about installing, if you haven't already, some very cheap privacy tools that you download from uh, Ghostery's website or Do Not Track Me's website. These are available. The, the, the websites are evidon.com, E-V-I-D-O-N.com, and abine.com, A-B-I-N-E.com. And these will be on your, your website, I'm sure, as examples. These are tools that you can download, and, and they will effectively protect you from 
third-party tracking and give you the peace of mind to keep browsing and informing yourself as you go through the online space. Now, give us the website that we can that my uh, audience can get the research, and then maybe they can support you in this wonderful, passionate quest that you have. Right. So, my research was published by the Journal of the American Medical Association Network. Um, the The particular website is called Jammer Internal Medicine. That's J A M A Internal Medicine dot com. You are, is, oh, go ahead. That's a that's a, uh, a not-for-profit institution that publishes academic research um, objectively and does not track you, by the way, should you go to that website. <laughs> Marco, you are just wonderful. Thank you for all the great work that you're doing, Dr. Marco Huish. We just appreciate this, and we will have you back again. Thank you, and, and thank you for having me. All right. All have right. a great day. Great. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank, the host of Privacy Piracy. Visit our website at KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy and write us an email about what you want to know about in privacy in the information age. Thanks. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.